Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Let's go to the deputy editor at Business Insider, Dave Leventhal. Dave, a happy Sunday. <laughs> happy Sunday to you too, Joe. Now, Dave, we'll, we'll start Friday and work our way back. Friday, there was uh, an executive order uh, pertaining to abortion rights at the White House. Uh, some say it didn't go far enough, but what was that executive order? Sure. Well, the executive order, let, let's first talk about it in its broadest sense. Uh, A lot of people, when they hear executive order, think that it's going to be some kind of dramatic action that is going to change law or otherwise uh, rejigger the way that we we think about public discourse or or, or the way that we can uh, can act, we can function as a country, right? And oftentimes, the actual executive order falls somewhere short of that. We saw that with Barack Obama and his executive orders. We saw that with Donald Trump and his executive orders. And now flash forward to last Friday, as you mentioned, we had Joe Biden uh, signing executive orders that pertained to the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court that effectively overturned Roe v. Wade. So these decisions, and, and, and there's several things going on here, but the bottom line really is, is that these executive orders are going to use the very limited power that the executive branch has to, in some areas around the margins, make it easier, particularly in states where abortion is going to remain legal because of state laws that are in place, New York being among them, and, and make it easier for women to access abortion services or reproductive services, etc. What this doesn't do, and this is really the most important part of it, is really change anything that the Supreme Court brought down. This does not overturned the decision. It does not change the decision. And particularly in states uh, all across the country, from Texas to Oklahoma to Missouri, all across the Midwest and in the South in particular, those laws that have uh, more or less outlawed or severely limited abortion rights, uh, those are going to remain in place and nothing has changed. But And Dave, to that point, is there anything that President Joe Biden could do by himself that would cancel out what the Supreme Court did? The answer is no. And it didn't happen Friday. It's not going to happen in the future. Now, we can definitely talk about Congress attempting to, and you hear this term a lot, uh, codify Roe, which in essence would say it is federal law, the law of the land throughout all 50 states, going above and beyond what any state law does to, to make abortion legal all across the country. That's something that Democrats in particular are talking a lot about. That's something that is also too uh, highly unlikely at this point in time, particularly given that the Democrats, although they do control and have power in the Senate right now, would need to 
basically get 60 votes and not 50 votes in order to clear the very, very tall hurdle uh, of the filibuster, which gives the minority par- party a, a lot of power to, to beat back anything that doesn't have a direct financial budgetary implication. So for something like codifying Roe, you would need ostensibly 60 votes and not 50. And Democrats right now, they have exactly 50 plus the tiebreaker of Vice President Kamala Harris. And looking forward just a couple of months to the 2022 midterm elections, things are not going to probably get any better for, for Democrats in the sense that even though they have the House and the Senate majorities at this moment, Republicans are in a very strong position to, uh, to perhaps in one or even both of those sides of Congress take over and take power and have the majority at that point. So the legislative map going forward, so to speak, is, is not looking great for Democrats and talk of codifying Roe or doing anything uh, of a legislative sort is, at this point, highly unlikely. Dave, you know, I'm not the kind of person that likes to live in the past, uh, but in the last 50 years, the Democrats have had opportunities to codify uh, Roe. You're hearing that from some people uh, now, that the opportunity has been there. Uh, they, they, it just was never taken. You're right. And the Democrats have had stronger majorities uh, at at times in the past, uh, over the past 50 years. And uh, this has not been a priority for them as it has been now. And nothing like the Supreme Court changing things in a absolutely massive and dramatic way to to light the fire of of legislated initiative uh, underneath you. But Democrats have really been scrambling over the past couple of weeks to come up with any kind of answer to the Supreme Court's decisions on behalf of the people who support Democrats. And what we're seeing, too, and this is something that everyone should pay very close attention to, regardless of whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, just a, a curious political observer and independent, is that there is a schism in the Democratic Party. Now, how big is it going to be? How, how much of a effect is that going to have on the 2022 midterms? That remains to be seen, but you definitely have some uh, progressives, some very far-left activists within the Democratic Party who are incredibly upset with the notion that Democrats have not done enough, in their opinion, over the years to ensure that not only Roe has been codified, but other very far-left progressive type of initiatives uh, have been taken and taken seriously by the, the more mainstream Democrats, if you will. So, so that's something that even Joe Biden's communications director just in, in the past day has addressed and basically saying that Joe Biden is not going to kowtow to, to far-left extremists in his own party, that they have a plan. But is everyone going to believe that? Well, that, that also, too, remains to be seen, Joe. Speaking of uh, of the ongoing debate around abortion rights, uh, this is a piece you did in the Business Insider, and you guys look at the investments of all political figures. You guys have done extensive reporting on this, uh, but we find that some Republican lawmakers uh, who have applauded the decision from the Supreme Court are actually invested in companies uh, that will pay for out-of-state abortions. That's absolutely true. And what we reported is that we found dozens of examples of Republican lawmakers who fit that description, who personally invest in companies that have in the past weeks said, Look, if we have an employee who lives in a state where abortion is now illegal or very difficult to obtain, we will pay for them to go and travel across state lines to obtain an abortion if that's what they want. And so you have a lot of Republicans 
who, uh, of course, are decrying the fact that uh, some companies are doing this, but at the same time, too, have personal investments in, in a few cases into the hundreds of thousands of dollars in those very companies. So we, we talked to several uh, anti-abortion organizations who've been fighting against Roe v. Wade for many, many years, even decades, and put the question to them and said, well, what do you think these Republican lawmakers should do? And most of them said, well, they should divest. They should get rid of these stocks. They should not be in any material way supporting or, or investing their own personal fortunes in companies that, that are taking these types of actions. And most of the lawmakers that, that we attempted to talk to were silent on it and, and didn't want to talk about this at all. So this definitely raises a, an issue for them as to whether their their personal finances are uh, conflicting uh, or otherwise intersecting uh, in, in a problematic way with, uh, with their public responsibilities and their public positions and, and their uh, public pronostications when it comes to policy and politics. Dave, also this week in Washington, uh, speaking of the Supreme Court, I, I guess we will stay on, on that for one more question. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh was at a Morton Steakhouse and uh, had, to, uh, had to be removed uh, because he was getting heckled while out to dinner. And, and he has actually gotten support from people on the right and left as, you know, you should be left alone and able to enjoy a dinner, uh, even at these tense, toxic political times. And that, that's the, the crux of the debate. And, and him getting heckled at a dinner, although it was uh, quite high profile and out in public, uh, is probably the least of the worries of Supreme Court justices right now who have faced uh, numerous threats uh, on their safety and security. Uh, certainly this could be part and parcel of this. No indication that, that there was a actual death threat uh, at this uh, uh, that restaurant situation at the Morton Steakhouse, uh, but there have been other situations in the past many weeks uh, where there have been real threats, uh, violent threats uh, against Supreme Court justices, federal judges, and also members of Congress, too. So we're dealing with a lot of people uh, who are serving in power right now who feel as if they are under real or perceived uh, threat of their personal safety. And this is something that is not new to politics, but is very acute at this moment in time. And, uh, and, and it's dangerous. It's scary. And it comes at, at, the, at the very moment when the, the former prime minister of Japan has been assassinated uh, by somebody uh, who, who took it upon himself to, to shoot uh, Shinzo Abe and, and kill him. So it's, it's kind of scary here in Washington. And you definitely see a, uh, a very, very serious effort on the part of law enforcement to make sure that uh, whether you are a judge, a member of Congress, or otherwise a position, uh, a person in a position of power, that they have the requisite security that they need in order to remain safe. And uh, moving along to uh, well, Shinzo Abe, you talked about the assassination of Shinzo Abe. I did have a question uh, or, or just a comment in your take on it. it. It did seem like every past president, you know, Republican and Democrat, had something positive uh, to say about Shinzo Abe. It, it seemed like all were in agreement uh, that he was a friend of the United States. He was one of the most beloved uh, uh, international foreign leaders uh, of, of American leaders, regardless of their political stripes. So he was somebody who, uh, over the course of his uh, roughly decade in, in power as prime minister, it dealt uh, with multiple U.S. presidents. It, it dealt with the United States across different administrations and, and absolutely was uh, constantly lauded as somebody who was a supporter of the United States, a friend of the United States, 
and also to a, a willing partner uh, who, who saw Japan in the United States as the closest of allies and, and that uh, the, the United States uh, being uh, integral to Japan's future and uh, integral to Japan's success and not somebody to be railed against or fought with, but somebody to uh, or a country to be embraced and, and to be worked with. And uh, that's why you're, you're hearing so many of the, the plaudits come now for him uh, of course, after he has died, um, but while he was alive, he absolutely was somebody who definitely was regarded as the kind of friend that you just described. Dave, uh, another hot topic in Washington, uh, it, uh, gun rights, gun uh, laws. Any uh, legislation in the works? I know we had a bipartisan agreement a few weeks ago. Uh, anything on top of that that you're hearing could be uh, coming out? Never say never, but it is unlikely that there is going to be the political appetite to go above and beyond the uh, the gun bill that was passed, which was something. It was uh, more than there was a couple of months ago, but still very much around the margins and not ticking off uh, any of the big checkboxes that Democrats in particular had, such as banning high-capacity magazines or having an outright assault weapon ban uh, or, or even types of background checks that uh, many Democrats who wanted to go forward with. So it would be very surprising at this point, especially going into the teeth of an election season, that there would be another bill that would go beyond what had already been passed. But uh, yet again, we are here talking about uh, extreme violence, mass shootings that have taken place. Highland Park, Illinois is the one that uh, everyone is thinking about and talking about as of late, but the question remains, what's next? Where is it going to be? Is it going to be my city, my hometown? What state is it going to be? And I would point people to to, to a very uh, troubling article that uh, is on the front page of the Washington Post today, which goes beyond mass shootings and just talks about gun violence in general uh, with a very, very chilling figure that uh, there had been 45,000 roughly per year uh, gun-related deaths that have happened all across the country. So while the mass shootings often get the biggest headlines, it's uh, in cities and towns and states across the country that are experiencing a rash of, of gun violence and murders where people's mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and cousins are, uh, are here one day and they're not the next uh, as a result of gun violence. Dave, you know, everyone's talking 2022 midterm elections, but uh, there are some eyes on 2024. We saw Gavin Newsom playing spots in Florida, uh, ask, telling people to, you know, come to the free state of California. Uh, but, uh, you know, more and more you see more people trying to feel the political waters. Is there, and I, I know probably a lot of people wouldn't be as vocal about it, but is there a feeling in Washington that on the left and the right— Neither uh, neither want a Trump versus Biden. They might not say that out loud, but there's a feeling more and more that both parties kind of want to go in a different direction. There is absolutely unquestionably a feeling, uh, a, a vibe, if you will, uh, here in Washington and beyond as to the, the sense that a 2024 Joe Biden, Donald Trump head to head rematch of, of 2020 would not be good. For Republicans, not be good for Democrats, and would not be good for the country. Now, that is not something, as you said, that most people are saying out loud. That is not even something that a lot of people at this point are probably thinking about in their day-to-day -day life, because 2024 is uh, is 
still far away, and there's a lot going to happen between now and then, and people are focused on the Supreme Court decisions and the January 6th committee hearings and, oh, you know, things like, hey, we're going on vacation next week. So is that really what people are are thinking about uh, acutely and urgently right now? Probably not. But at the same time, too, you have lots of potential candidates who would love an opportunity to run for president in 2024, many of them Republicans, but increasingly some Democrats who are kind of doing these little very early, uh, almost sneaky little plays and and trial balloons like Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, uh, poking at uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, in his own state. Ron DeSantis is being talked about constantly, at least among all of the non-Joe Biden, non-Donald Trump potential candidates sort of the leading possibility to, uh, to to make a charge for the 2024 Republican Party presidential nomination. and uh, but, but, yeah, there are definitely others. There's Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, Chrissy Noem, the governor of uh, South Dakota, and you could probably name about 10 other Republicans who you could conceivably put on that list. But Joe Biden, he'll be in his 80s by the time he runs in 2024 if he chooses to run. So, whether it's Gavin Newsom or perhaps Pete Buttigieg, obviously vice presidential, uh, vice presidential nominee and now Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, all possibilities, including a few others who, especially for Democrats, are concerned that Joe Biden, as unpopular as he is across the country right now, and in some frustrations building about how they feel he's been slow to the punch on various issues that Democrats or just Americans in general care about, are beginning to wonder if uh, there would be something uh, to be said about going in a different direction uh, or, or, or trying to really put the pressure on Joe Biden to just be a voluntary one-term president and step away so that a, a younger, perhaps even more progressive Democrat uh, could come about. Dave, this might be an unfair question because it is asking for speculation. Uh, but do you see from what you're hearing, you know, you know everything Washington, D.C., uh, more than anybody. Uh, do you see the possibility of a 1976 Ford uh, Reagan primary in the Democrat Party? Or do you think that if Joe Biden says he's going to run, um, the others will, will wait till 2028? <laughs> well, first, you flatter me, but thank you. Uh, and uh, I would say this. That, that is there a possibility that that could happen? Yes, there is a possibility that that could happen. doesn't mean it's going to happen. And, and I think if, if somebody had to make a bet right now that, uh, that the Democrats were going to have a primary where Joe Biden was running, running for a second term, and a Democrat challenged him, it would be a Democrat probably from the far left. And, and that would play on sort of the, the current concerns right now within the Democratic Party intermurally, where, as we just mentioned a moment ago, sort of the mainstream Democrats versus the, the far-left progressive Democrats. And, and that's where you're having some intra-party tension. So could things change in that regard? Of course they could change. But at this point, there is at least the, the working theory that if Joe Biden is going to get primaried, it's not going to be by somebody who is more or less in philosophical league with Joe Biden, somebody who might be a little bit more of a a centrist, at least by Democrat standards, but somebody who would be definitely of the uh, squad wing of the Democratic Party, the AOC wing of the Democratic Party, maybe even Bernie Sanders again. But, uh, you know, naming names at this point would 
would just be a flight of fantasy. So that, there's, there's the best speculation I, I probably could give you uh, here in uh, mid-July 2022 when talking about something that would not be occurring until uh, at least a, a year, year and a half from now. And uh, finally, you mentioned it. We, we didn't get to it, but we'll we'll, uh, we'll wrap up the interview with this. Uh, there, the January sixth committee will be back. Uh, the the Price is Right will be preempted this week. Uh, what are we looking forward to? <laughs> Much to, to lots of people's chagrin, but yeah, this is uh, going to be a. Uh, it seems like every time uh, we talk about this, uh, there's going to be even more drama than the last time. Well, I, I think that's safe to say. I mean, this time too, there's going to be a definite effort by the committee based on what they've said so far about this prime time Thursday hearing that is going to tie Donald Trump or people very close to Donald Trump to the actual effort to storm the Capitol, to break into the Capitol and to stop the process of Congress counting the and certifying the electoral votes from the states all around the country and also to potentially tie people in Donald Trump's innermost orbit and even Donald Trump himself to the, uh, to the right-wing militia organizations that were present and that were armed on January 6th, something that, that we know is fact right now has been proven well beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, and that's going to be really the, the crux and the center of what we're going to expect here on Thursday is the degree to which the committee is going to be able to, uh, to prove those ties or, or provide evidence that ties to Donald Trump uh, and that type of activity were were real, and uh, that type of activity was being not only vaguely uh, uh, inspired by Donald Trump, but directly pushed by Donald Trump himself. You know, um, after Cassidy Hutchinson gave her testimony, there was a lot of uh, news that there were people uh, directly involved that were going to refute that under oath. Has any of that uh, is any of that going to be happening under oath in front of the January 6th committee? Possibly. And there were a couple of Secret Service agents uh, who had, uh, very informally said that they were willing to testify to some of the details that had come up in that testimony. Uh, one of them was, did Donald Trump physically take the wheel of the vehicle that he was traveling in uh, at the time? when he left his January 6th speech on the National Mall right before the attack took place? Did he put his hands on a Secret Service agent? So, so that is still in the offing, and, and we'll see what happens, whether there's going to be something that, that, that contradicts that testimony. What we have not gotten any indication of is that Donald Trump was actively, regardless of whether he physically put his hands on anyone, that he was absolutely determined to do whatever he could to stop the count at the Capitol and that he wanted to go to the Capitol, that he wanted to perhaps even go inside the Capitol himself and that he was uh, utterly livid and and absolutely beyond himself uh, in terms of trying to get away from the White House and get to the Capitol. And nobody at this point, including uh, his former White House um, chief counsel, who Pat Cipollone, who just uh, testified before the committee in a closed door session, uh, the word is from the members of the select committee themselves that he said nothing that contradicted any of the prior testimony that has taken place. But the committee is willing or is looking for if there is someone to contradict contradict that story, put them in a, in a public uh, hearing just as Cassidy Hutchinson. Public hearing is, is unknown. Uh, take testimony quite possibly. And let's remember that there have been more than a thousand people at this point 
who have provided testimony. And what we're seeing on television is just a fraction of a fraction of uh, any of the testimony that is actually taken place. So it'll be up to the committee to determine whether there's public testimony that is taken in, in a prime time televised, nationally televised sense. Uh, but also, too, there, it's entirely possible that they will uh, have somebody testify uh, to that very point that you just brought up and, and not do so in, in as public a fashion as, say, Cassidy Hutchinson. Dave, is there a date that this committee has to be wrapped up? No, nothing uh, immediate. And we know that there are definitely going to be at least a couple more public sessions this month here in July. It is possible that this could go into August. And uh, what we've heard is that the, the select committee itself does want to wrap up soon. And, and I think we're talking probably early fall, but there is no hard and fast deadline where by, say, August 31st or something of that sort, that they have to finish their, their business. That's really ultimately up to them, Joe. Dave Leventhal, Business Insider. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Joe. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.